The question of calling can be one of vocation, place of residence, or spirituality. One such question of calling is answered, in part, through the story of Elijah's anointing of Elisha to replace him as prophet. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the life of Elijah, as it's read in the book of 1 Kings. In today's passage, we'll see how God calls people into life and ministry. Well, Phil, today's message marks a transition in the story of Elijah. Can you explain exactly why? Well, Mark, the last time that we saw Elijah, he was in the depths of his spiritual depression and really had a self-focused approach to life. And yet here, as we turn to the end of 1 Kings 19, Elijah once again is focusing on others and on the work that God has for him to do, and particularly the work of calling a man to be a prophet and a man to be a king. Well, Phil, let's talk about callings for a second. We could draw out the implication that callings are from God, but how will we go about verifying those callings, making sure that they truly are from God? Well, Mark, I think anytime a Christian is wrestling with the question of God's calling, we need to recognize there's both an inward call and an outward call. The inward call is the desires that God has put into your mind and heart. And the outward call is the opportunity that comes, particularly in the context of ministry, the calling that comes from the church to do some particular work in the service of God. And we should be looking both to see an inward call and an outward call that confirms that inward call. Thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 15, and listen to God's Word for us today. I suppose that Elisha associated his decision to follow God and not turn back with the smell of roast beef. When Elijah came and placed his mantle upon Elisha's shoulders, Elisha took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. We had a great barbecue back on Mount Carmel, when God sent fire from heaven to consume Elijah's sacrifice. And now Elisha has decided to follow God, and there will be burgers and steaks for everyone. And there will be no turning back. Not now. Not after this. Elisha's livelihood has gone up in smoke. By the time his oxen are done medium well, he is out of a job. By the time his friends have wiped the last juicy dribbles of barbecue from their chins, he has nowhere to go but forwards. It is much too late to have second thoughts about following God. I can imagine Elisha waking up the following morning and planning his day, still thinking about his farming responsibilities. Let's see, I have some plowing to do today. I need to get up and feed the oxen. Now, wait a second. No, I don't have any oxen anymore. I seem to remember the aroma of oxen slowly roasting over my burning plow. There is no turning back. Elisha has decided to follow the living God. 
Elisha's little cookout gives us a powerful picture of what it means to be totally devoted to God. When the Christian decides to follow Jesus, there can be no turning back. And when some Christians hear the call to enter a particular ministry, there can be no turning back. This story teaches us at least three lessons about following God and not turning back. And the first is this. God calls the Christian into life and ministry. God calls the Christian into life and ministry. Elisha's life as a disciple and his ministry as a prophet began with a divine calling. Elisha did not call himself. God called him. Back in verse 16 of 1 Kings 19, the Lord said to Elijah, Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Avel Mecholah, to succeed you as prophet. Now, you may remember that Elijah was in the depths of depression when God gave him those instructions. He thought God's work was all up to him, and he was becoming very discouraged, too discouraged to carry on. And so God restored him to active ministry by giving him some help. God was teaching Elijah that none of his servants is indispensable. There's always someone else who can carry on the Lord's work. And so God sent Elijah to anoint several kings and then to anoint Elisha to be prophet in Israel. It was almost as if it took three men to do the job of one Elijah. So Elijah did as he was told. He went up from Horeb and he found Elisha and he went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Of course, this was a symbolic gesture. We get our expression about wearing someone's mantle from this passage. Elijah was casting his mantle over Elisha. He was anointing him. He was designating Elisha as his successor. He was investing him with all of the spiritual authority that went with the office of being prophet in Israel. And anointing Elisha in this way was God's idea. Elijah did not choose his successor. God chose him. Elisha's calling was not from men, but from God. And of course, we know that Elisha has to answer God's call, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But the calling itself came from God. God called Elisha into life and ministry. The same is true for the Christian We see it all through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee when he saw two brothers fishing. Jesus called Simon and Andrew, come, follow me. The same thing happened to Matthew. He was sitting in his toll booth collecting taxes when Jesus came and said, follow me. We see it all through the New Testament. Peter stood up at Pentecost and preached to the nations the promise is for all whom the Lord our God will call. Paul wrote to Timothy, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. He wrote the same thing to the Thessalonians. From the beginning, God chose you to be saved. He called you to this through our gospel. The Christian does not come to God on his or her own initiative. The Christian is called into Christian life and ministry by God. This is the doctrine of effectual calling. 
which simply means that the call of God is effective for his people. When God purposes to call a sinner to salvation, the sinner comes. The effective calling is the work of God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit convinces us that we are miserable sinners. He enlightens our minds to know Jesus Christ. And then he persuades us to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. That's how the shorter catechism describes the call of God. When God calls a sinner to salvation, he doesn't just mail out a leaflet with a sort of general invitation. But as God's messengers hand deliver a summons to salvation, the Holy Spirit takes sinners by the hand and leads them to eternal life. And I am hand delivering that summons this morning. In the words of this sermon and in the words of the scripture before us, I call you to return to God with all your heart. Leave your sins behind and come to God in Christ and do not turn back. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb and he was raised again. If you open your heart to him, he will lead you to eternal life and save you from all your sins. That is how God calls the Christian into the Christian life. Now, God also calls Christians into ministry. That's what this story is partly about. Elisha did not choose his calling. God chose it for him. Of course, the same is true when it comes to Christian ministry. No Christian chooses his or her own service to God. The call to Christian service for everything from Nursery duty to pastoral ministry comes ultimately from God. God calls us to our particular service for him in the church and in the world. Now, even though the call to ministry comes from God, it usually comes through the church, usually comes through other believers. William Perkins, one of the great Puritan preachers, posed this question, how can you know for yourself whether God wants you to go into some ministry or not? That is a question many of us would love to be able to answer for ourselves. How do I know what God wants me to do to serve him? Well, Perkins' answer was that you must ask both your own conscience and the church. Your conscience must judge of your willingness and the church of your ability That is the way it was for Elisha. He may or may not have had an inclination to become a prophet, but his calling came through another believer when Elijah threw him his cloak. The call was still from God, but it was confirmed by the people of God. If you want to know how the Lord wants you to serve him, first listen to your own heart, and then step forward when you are asked to serve. But then seek the counsel of the church. If you are truly called to some ministry, other believers will confirm you in your calling. That is especially true when it comes to pastors and ruling elders. No one decides on his own to become a pastor. When Elisha was called to the prophetic office, his call came through the hands of another prophet. We do much the same thing in the Presbyterian Church. When a man is ordained to the office of teaching a ruling elder, all the elders of the church come forward and lay their hands upon him in prayer. They are casting their mantle upon him. 
This symbolic act shows that the call to ministry comes from God through the church. God calls the Christian into ministry. Now, whenever God calls, we must answer. And Elisha's answer to God's call in verses 20 and 21 of this chapter teaches us a second lesson about following God. To answer God's call is to leave everything behind. To answer God's call is to leave everything else behind. Elisha's response to the call of God is immediate. He leaps at the chance to follow Elijah. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. This seems to be a picture of perfect discipleship. But then things get a little confusing. Elisha says, Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Is Elisha turning back? Is he trying to put off his decision to follow God? Elijah's response is just as puzzling. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? What does that mean? Elijah seems to be saying something like this, Go ahead. I have not done anything to stop you from turning back. The New English Bible puts it like this, Go back. What have I done to prevent you? This verse is especially hard to understand if we're familiar with the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, a man comes up to Jesus and says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. He seems to be making the same request Elisha made, but Jesus gives him a different answer. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. By mentioning the plow, Jesus seems to be calling to mind the story of Elisha. Was it wrong for Elisha to bid farewell to his parents? Roger Ellsworth gives a good answer in his exposition of this passage. He says, The answer has to lie within the hearts of the two men. Elijah knew that Elisha's request came from a heart that was eager to follow, while Jesus knew this other man's request came from a heart which was reluctant to follow. To go home and bid farewell was for Elisha the way to show that he was making a radical break with his old life and giving himself his new task. That is why in the process of bidding farewell, he actually slaughtered a team of oxen and barbecued them on a bonfire. The man with whom Jesus was dealing, however, wanted to discuss and deliberate with his family over whether he was doing the right thing. He had obviously not yet been seized by the same spirit which gripped Elisha, the spirit of willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the call. Ellsworth is probably right. The man whom Jesus met was trying to bargain for time. He wanted to put off God's call to discipleship. He wanted to delay the day of decision. And I suppose that there might be someone here like that this morning. Have you been putting God off? waiting for some other day to decide to follow Jesus Christ? If so, then heed the warning Jesus gives. You cannot keep Jesus waiting forever. 
Do not put off the day of decision to follow him any longer, but give your whole life to him today. Do what Elisha did. When he went back to kiss his father and mother goodbye, he made a powerful public demonstration of his decision to follow God. What he is really saying to Elijah is this, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye so that I may come with you. For Elisha, going back to say farewell was not a way of delaying. It was a way of beginning to follow. And this is where the roast beef comes in. If Elisha wants to follow God, he has to leave his livestock behind. Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Elijah's decision to follow God was an occasion for feasting. He was so joyful that he killed not one but two fatted calves. He took everything that belonged to his old way of life and he cooked it. Disciples often leave everything behind when they follow God. We see it in the lives of Jesus' disciples. Jesus called Simon and Andrew while they were fishing. At once, they left their nets and followed him. The same is said of James and John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Matthew got up, left his toll booth and all his loose change behind and followed Jesus. Whenever people asked Jesus what they had to do to become his disciples, he told them that they had to leave everything behind. Everything? Yes, everything. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, Elisha had plenty of everything to leave behind. At the very least, he owned a yoke of oxen and a farm implement. But the scripture says that he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And a farmer who needs a dozen tractors has a big piece of land. The implication is that all of these oxen belong to Elisha, or perhaps to his father. In either case, he was a wealthy man. He was set for life with 24 oxen in his stables and 11 servants to help drive them. Elisha was not just a farmhand. He was heir to a country estate. It is not easy to leave behind such great wealth to follow God. One time a rich man came up and asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said, one thing you lack, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus was telling him to do exactly what Elisha did. When Elisha gave everything he had to the poor and followed God. But the rich man who approached Jesus lowered his gaze and walked sadly away, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. What are you willing to leave behind? To follow God? Are you willing to quit your job? 
you willing to leave your family? Are you willing to take all your possessions and give them to the poor? Are you willing to leave home? Elisha was asked to do all those things. You may not be. God does not always ask us to do everything that he asks other disciples to do. Often the Lord calls us to serve him right where we are in our own circumstances. But God did ask Elisha to give up everything. His calling to God superseded all other callings, even his calling as a son. That is what it means to follow God. A Christian is always willing to leave everything behind to follow Jesus. If you are saying in your heart, I am willing to give up everything except this or that or the other thing, then you are in danger of turning back. A true disciple is ready at any moment to break his plow into kindling and to sacrifice the fat oxen of prosperity to follow Christ. To answer God's call is to leave everything else behind. And then there is a final lesson about following God and not turning back in the last sentence of this chapter. The scripture says, Elisha set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. Here is the third lesson. We learn how to follow Christ from older and wiser Christians. We learn how to follow Christ from older and wiser Christians. Elisha was apprentice to a prophet. He was starting what you might call a sort of internship in ministry. To follow in Elijah's footsteps was to be tutored in the art of prophecy. Elisha became Elijah's attendant, and Elijah became Elisha's mentor. We get a sense of the intimacy of their relationship in 2 Kings 2, verse 12, where Elisha calls Elijah his father. Perhaps the best word to describe Elisha is servant. In 2 Kings 3, verse 11, he is introduced to the king of Israel as the one who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Elisha ministered to Elijah, even to the point of washing his hands. The two men were not equals. Elisha stepped forward to become a servant to Elijah. I suppose today we would say that Elijah was discipling Elisha. A disciple is simply a follower, so to be discipled is to be taught by another Christian how to follow Christ and not to turn back. You see, being a Christian involves more than just going forward at a revival meeting and praying the sinner's prayer, although that can be a good start to the Christian life. But being a disciple means following after Jesus with your whole life. And one of the best ways to learn how to do that is to follow in the footsteps of an older and wiser Christian. That is exactly what Elisha did. He set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. This is God's pattern for Christian life and ministry. One generation of believers disciples the next generation over and over and over again until Christ returns. If you want a good example from the Bible, there is the relationship between Moses and Joshua. Joshua learned how to follow God by following Moses. 
New International Version says that Joshua was Moses' aide. That makes Joshua sound like an executive secretary or an offensive coordinator or something. A better translation is servant. That is what the scripture says. Joshua served Moses. And by doing so, he was well prepared to become Moses' successor. If you want a good example from the history of the church, you can take John Knox. We usually think of Knox as the father of the Scottish Reformation. But before John Knox, there was a reformer named George Wishart. George Wishart traveled all around Scotland preaching repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, especially from the letter to the Romans. And John Knox served simply as his bodyguard, carrying a great sword to protect him from Roman Catholics, I suppose. Knox attended Wishart, just the way that Elisha attended Elijah. And so when Wishart was later burned at the stake, Knox was ready to step into his place. He had listened to Wishart preach so many times that he had learned how to preach himself. This is God's usual pattern for growth in Christian life and ministry. Those who are young in the faith learn how to follow Christ from those who are mature. Beginners in ministry learn from ministry veterans. Look behind any great leader of the Christian church and you will find one or perhaps several older and wiser believers. Now a discipling relationship is a two-way street. That's another thing we learn from this relationship between Elisha and Elijah. Obviously, it is a great blessing to the younger Christian to be discipled, to learn how to grow in grace. But discipleship also strengthens the discipler. That's partly because every Christian has something to teach every other Christian. Even the newest believer can encourage the oldest Christian. This was true for Elijah. Elijah threw his mantle around Elisha. It was the beginning of the end of his ministry. His ministry is not over yet because God still has more for him to do. But we will see as we continue in our studies that from this point, Elijah begins to recede and Elisha will grow from strength to strength. And that is why it is so valuable to Elijah to serve as Elisha's mentor. We have seen the old prophet grow weary of serving God. And yet this young prophet will reinvigorate him. That was the reason God had Elisha anointed, so that Elijah would have help to do the Lord's work. In his comments on this passage, A.W. Pink observes that it has ever been a great consolation to godly ministers and their flocks to think that God will never lack instruments to conduct his work that when they are removed, others will be brought forward to carry on. Some months ago, a young man asked me to recommend someone to disciple him. I suggested the name of a mature Christian man who might have the time and the gifts and the willingness to disciple him. I didn't hear anything more about it until a few weeks ago when the older man came and thanked me for helping to start their discipling relationship. Now they meet weekly to speak about spiritual things and to pray. This has been such a blessing to me, the older man said. And for his part, the younger man tells me that those meetings are the highlight of his week. This discipling relationship 
in the same way that Elisha's discipling relationship with Elijah has become a mutual blessing. Now, there is much more to discipleship than a one-on-one relationship. Everything that happens in the church is part of our learning how to follow Jesus and not to turn back. In fact, we are being discipled, every one of us, by the Word of God at this very moment. But there is an important place in the Christian life for discipleship through personal relationships. We need more of those kinds of friendships in the church. During my time at 10th, I have had at least a dozen young men come to me seeking regular discipleship from a mature man in Christ. They tell me that they have a deep desire to learn how to follow Jesus, and they are looking for mature, godly men to take an interest in them, to teach them from the Scriptures and to pray with them. And I can imagine that there are many young women in the congregation who feel the same way, that they need spiritual counsel from a woman who is mature in Christ. However, I have yet to have any older men or older women come up to me to ask if there is anyone whom they might disciple. Discipleship ought to be happening throughout the whole church. Everyone who exercises a ministry ought to be a discipler. Are you a Sunday school teacher? Then teach your assistant how to teach. Are you a grandmother? Then find some young mother in the church and teach her how to become a mother. Are you a deacon or a deaconess? Then help the people in your parish learn how to serve. Are you mature in the faith or at least becoming mature in the faith? Then give a piece of your life to some younger believer. I am not talking so much about chronological age, but spiritual age. Become an Elijah to some young Elisha. Now, after learning these lessons about following Christ and not turning back, someone might still ask if following Christ is really worth it. I sometimes ask myself the same question. A few of you know the series of providential circumstances which brought us to 10th Presbyterian Church. Most of you do not know that we also considered the possibility of going to Romania, where an evangelical seminary wanted to establish a teaching post in Reformation and Puritan theology. And of course, eventually it became clear to us that the Lord was calling us to serve here, not there. But at the time, we asked ourselves what we were willing to give up to follow Jesus. It seemed at the time like we would have to leave almost everything behind, family, friends, home, basketball, (laughs) chocolate chips. I mean, these are the things that come into your mind when you're thinking about what you must leave behind to follow Jesus. Everything, it seemed like. And I was reminded at the time of a question Peter once asked Jesus, it is a question so poignant that you can almost sense the lump in Peter's throat when he asks it. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? You see, sometimes disciples get a little nervous. They remember how comfortable life was before they slaughtered their oxen and burned their plows. And they worry about what lies ahead for them 
What will there be for those who leave everything to follow Jesus Christ? Well, I wrote out the answer Jesus gave to Peter, and I posted it in our kitchen. I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields, notice the fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. That is what lies ahead for those who follow Jesus and are not turning back. As for me, by the grace of God, I will follow Jesus. Though none go with me, I still will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. How about you? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, there is much for us to pray about. We pray first of all for those among us this morning who have not yet decided to follow you and not to turn back. We ask that you would speak to them by your Holy Spirit. Give them such comforting assurances of your grace that they will know that they must follow you. We pray for those who have, it seems, left everything or at least something to follow you. We pray for those who are in the process of leaving everything to follow you and are still feeling the loss of those things. We ask for your grace to be revealed in our lives that we might follow you with great confidence and joy with not even a backwards glance at what we have left behind. We give you praise for what lies ahead in Christ for all eternity. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. 
or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.